evening. So good to see everyone. And um, we are going to, as Justin said, continue our study on the hope that Jesus gives. Um, we began, for those of you that are just joining us a week ago, talking about the place of hope in our theology. We, we understand hope, <clears throat> excuse me, um, we said that hope is, is understood in the context of, of faith, hope, and love. Hope divorced from faith and love can never fully be understood. So we spent a little bit of time talking about hope in the context of faith, hope, and love. They are the three eternals, three things that remain. And then uh, tonight we're going to talk about hope as the thing that keeps us going uh, between the promise and the fulfillment. Um, uh, someone that uh, had worked as an insurance adjuster told me that he went to look at a house that had been struck by lightning. And um, he said, the, the owner said, it struck the, this side of the house. And he went and looked. He said, it looked fine. He said, but something didn't look right. He said it just didn't look right. It took him a chance to realize, uh, a moment to realize that when the lightning struck the house, it did a strange thing. It blew out. It didn't, didn't knock any bricks down, but it blew out the mortar between the bricks. And it was just like they went through that and just sat down on top of each other, which meant they were about to fall at any moment. But um, hope is, is that mortar that keeps us, keeps the promise tethered, if you want to put it that way, or connected to the fulfillment. We want to read uh, from Hebrews chapter 6. This is probably the most detailed um, uh, of the studies, and it, it gets a little technical, but I hope I don't bore you. I hope I don't uh, uh, make you lose hope in the rest of the, the series. But um, next week we'll be talking uh, or, uh, about hope for our families. Then we've got a session on hope for our churches, uh, hope for our, um, for our nation, and then we'll, we'll wrap it together. And it, it, we, we've got a lot going on the next few Wednesday nights. We're coming up on Easter and Holy Week and, and, and all of that, but it, it's gonna be, uh, in other words, it'll, it, it'll be interrupted before we get to the end, but we will, we will do that. Hebrews 6, Father, we ask you to anoint us as we read, anoint us as we listen, anoint us as we wrap our arms around hope and realize how magnificent it is. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen, amen. Um, <clears throat> We want each of you, this is the writer of Hebrews chapter 6, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. Now there's some underlined and some bold type uh, uh, pass, uh, parts of the passage that we want to just kind of keep connected to. He says in this opening sentence, Hope is something that enables us to see the fulfillment. Hope enables us to stay steady to the end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, 
but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Okay, hope is connected to faith and there's an element of patience. Whenever you see patience connected to something in the text, obviously it just means that it's going to take some time. When, when something calls for patience, um, that's, that's, that ought to make us a little bit tense because it means we're going to have to wait a while. Uh, and we don't like it, but it's worth the wait. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what he was promised. There it is again, waiting patiently. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Uh, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Okay, now he's talking about patience, he's talking about hope, and he introduces us to a concept that's very clear in the Old Testament, but we don't think about it a lot. Words have power, and when God speaks by an oath, it's not a conditional prophecy. It's not a conditional promise. There are a lot of promises that are conditional. In fact, <clears throat> I've never done an actual count, but I would say that the majority of promises in Scripture are conditional. They are conditional. They're based on us walking in covenant with Him. But there are some that are made with an oath that are non-conditional and absolutely unbreakable. And the writer of Hebrews, writing to people that are suffering, says you've got to understand there are some things that God has promised that it's not contingent on you holding up your end of the deal. It is, it is God swearing by an oath. Let me give you an example that we talked about many times. When God made covenant with Abraham that he would do something significant with the seed of Abraham, with Israel... God had, uh, had Abraham cut up the animals for sacrifice. The traditional way of making covenant, it was called cutting covenant because the animal was cut into pieces. It was laid out sometimes on an altar, sometimes on the ground. <clears throat> and the two covenant parties would walk amid, uh, amid the pieces of the, of the sacrificed animal, making a figure eight repeatedly till they got to the other end. Then they would come back and do it. And then they would meet in the middle and uh, they, would, they would seal the covenant. And, and it, was, it was a picture in the, in the eyes of the culture that said, if I fail to keep my word to you, may I be cut into pieces like this animal and destroyed. I mean, that's a pretty significant thing. But when Abraham prepared to walk this covenant with God, when Abraham was prepared to say, Lord, if I fail you, may I be destroyed like this animal, God did something phenomenal. God himself walked the covenant alone. He walked it alone. He did not invite Abraham to do it. He did not uh, point out that this was any kind of failure for Abraham not to do it. <coughs> Excuse me. It's, it's springtime in Carolina. All right. Oh, so much stuff. Um, 
But God, you know, what God was doing, he was saying, Abraham, I, this is my editorializing. We would learn from the law of Moses that a lot of blessings were conditional. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. But there was an overarching promise that was the oath of God. And God said, and he didn't do it with, with everything, but God was saying to Abraham, I'm going to do this whether you are faithful or not. If you are faithful, it'll go so much better for you. It'll be so much easier for you. Life will be sweet. It'll be joy unspeakable and full of glory. But he said, I'm going to keep this promise of what I'm going to do to Israel. It's like my great grandpa used to, used to do. He, well, actually it was his daughter that taught me his philosophy. Um, he, he, he was, he said that if a cow learns what a cow ought to learn, when we walk out to the shed for milking, we bang the, the cans together, we call them. And he said, they all come running. They, I mean, well, at least they're all moving up there. They know it's time for milking. They know the routine. He said, we call, they come. He said, every now and again, we have one that just won't come. And we have to go get her and bring her in. And he said, we found out that we can't, we can't, there's not enough of us to, to rope them and drag them up. He said, so what we would do is we would put a rope around her neck, tie it around the bumper of the truck and bring her to the shed. He said, I had one, he said, we, we called it, we called her plow boy because she would lock her legs and we would pull her and she would just plow the lad as she was being brought up to the, um, to the shed to be milked. And, and he, he said this, he said, I've learned in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. He said, I guess that applies to cows too. He says, because most of the cows come, but we have learned that even if we have to drag them to the barn, they're coming. They have to be milked. And he, he taught his children and they taught their children and their children taught us. They said, just remember when you make a commitment to God and you give your life to Jesus, he's going to get you to heaven. You may be bellowing and plowing all the way there, but God has made a promise. And this, this idea of oath is connected to the idea of, of hope. He says, um, uh, verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have that, then he shifts metaphors now. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to learn just a couple of, of key foundational things about hope tonight. And uh, if we have time, I want to make a little bit of application at the end. We ask the question, first of all, why is hope so vital? Why is hope really that important? I think we explained that well last week. Faith seems to operate for the most part right now. 
in, in the right now. Um, love is that thing that is overarching and transcendent. And when nothing in the world makes sense, um, love kicks in and it ties everything together. Hope is that middle ground. Why is hope so vital? Uh, I think there are four things that seem, they're, they're a little ethereal. They're not things that are easily measured or defined, but they're true nonetheless. Why is hope so vital? Number one, the path that we are on is unknown. It's unknown. We can learn from history. We can learn from examples. That's why we have the entire Old Testament. But loved ones, this thing called life, um, you know what all of my friends that are my age now are saying? You know, I mean, we're, we're all saying this in one form or another. It, I think it comes with the Medicare card. I'm not sure. But we're all saying it. I wish I knew when I was 20 what I know now. Boy, would my life be different. I mean, I'm not talking about doing something else, you know, not pastoring. That's not the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm just talking about how I often think how rich my life would be if I could just take my top 10 mistakes and not do them. Just the top 10. I'm not even talking about the other 43,218 mistakes, just the top 10. If I could have begun my life as an adult understanding at 20 what I understand now, my life would be so much better. We all say that. We all say that. But the only way we know what we know now is by walking that path of mistakes and learning and failing and succeeding and victories. It's, it's a catch-22. We can't go back, number one, and even if we could, we would have to go back without the wisdom that we've accumulated through the years. We, we need to tell our children, and our children need to tell their children, and we need to make sure the world understands we are on a path that we can learn from others but the fact of the matter is it's unknown. And even when we are told the lessons of life, seldom do we embrace them or accept them. We have to learn ourselves. My pastor used to say, experience is the best teacher. And he said, an experience of others is the best experience. But he said, you're going to have to walk this out. And um, that's number one. The path we take is unknown. So it requires not only faith for the moment, but hope for the long haul. Uh, number two, the waiting required of us is unknown. Um, not only is the path unknown, but we don't know how long this thing is going to last. We don't know how long any particular trial is going to last. Sometimes we go through horrendous trials and difficulties, and they're over in three days. Or it may be three weeks, or it may be three months, or it may be years. We just don't know. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just saying it's unknown and it's out of our control. It's out of our control. Number three, our flesh is weak even if our spirit is willing. Paul told Timothy, he says, and Timothy was a, was a young man at the, at the time Paul said this to Timothy, 
from the best we can figure, Timothy was somewhere between 35 and 40 years of age, maybe a little bit older, maybe as old as 45. <clears throat> we don't know exactly. We have no way of pinning it down. But from the chronology of Acts and from the context of some of the statements, we know that he was a young man in, in that general time frame right there. And Paul told him, he said, the best way for you to deal with youthful lust is run. Run. Now, there, there may be a time that Timothy would think he had more control over fleshly lust. Maybe not. But uh, like someone asked, uh, uh, um, uh, I, I, the last time I told this story, I forgot his name. He's a great Methodist pastor. He was in his 80s and he was speaking to a group of young men in a camp. And he talked to them, to those pastors. He said, I, I want to tell you that, that you need to be on your guard against, against the lust of the flesh. And he, he, said, uh, he said it in a way, I like the way Pastor Darren said it. It's, it's more concise. Darren says, no matter how long you've been on the road, no matter how far you've gone down the road, you're still just a few feet from the ditch, you know. And he said, beware of those lusts of the flesh that war against the soul. And uh, one of my friends asked him afterwards, he says, this, here's a man in his 80s, he says, if you don't mind me asking a question that could be offensive, at what age did you begin to feel this was lessening as a part of your life and you had more control over it? And he said, as soon as it happens, I'll let you know. He, he, he went on, he wrote an article later. He said, what the flesh once gravitates to, even when the flesh lessens, your mind makes up. And he says, you have battles in the mind instead of in the flesh with some things, but it's still there. And, and he's, he's, he was telling us that we get wiser, but we don't necessarily um, understand that wisdom is not only learning things, but, but living things out. The flesh is weak, even if the spirit is willing. And number four, the waters are uncharted. Um, more than once, Paul, and the writer of Hebrews does it, refers to a seagoing experience as a good illustration of our life. Um, the ship is blown about as the sails are set to the wind. Our lives are directed as our spiritual life is set to the spirit. Um, but he says these waters, he said people that never learn are like people tossed about. Um, unstable, ungrounded, unable to navigate. And the waters that we're in are uncharted. They're uncharted. Um, that leads us to the second statement, and it is this. Why is hope so strong? Uh, here, here are three things that we latch on to. Uh, number one, he says, God cannot lie. God cannot lie. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had some criticism, um, I think from people, I think they're trying to help me, not, not from you, but I, I've had some criticism of people saying, you don't need to talk about what happened with the election and the, the prophetic community. And, um, you know, a, a very, a very wise man said, oh, they messed up. Give them a break. And I, I, 
I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm pro-profits, I'm not anti-profits, but I have said that when something is predicted as thus saith the Lord and it doesn't happen, we need to deal with that. And, and I said, the, the issue is not that somebody misread the, the, the leading of the Spirit. We've, we all have done that. We've all heard something and then got so excited we ran with it before letting God fully articulate what he's saying. We've all just gotten the flesh and missed it. And um, I mean, we, we've all done that. I don't think anybody's down on a prophetic community saying, you know, that if they're not perfect, we need to stone them. And that's not what that Old Testament passage is saying either, by the way, which is a lesson for another night. But I said, the thing that bothers me and the thing that we need to understand is when we say, thus saith the Lord, and then it doesn't come to pass, we have introduced to the world the concept that God can't handle his promises or that he has lied. And I want to tell you, the writer of Hebrews writing to these people in great difficulty said, you and I have got to come to the understanding sooner or later, we've got to settle the issue that God cannot lie. He cannot lie. Um, that has to do with his promise. And God cannot change. See, this is very subtle, but um, you, you say, well, that you, Pastor, you're telling us there's promises that can be conditional, and then there's the oath, which is unconditional. Uh, yeah, but that's only the surface. The, the thing that was the main lesson of this passage in Hebrews is not that uh, a promise is God saying, I will do this if you'll do that. And then an oath is God says, I'm going to do this anyway. An oath is sworn only by someone higher than you. Uh, you may not, I mean, you may have a conviction against doing this, but if you go to court, they want you to put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. That where that comes from in our uh, jurisprudence is we, we're, we're not only giving our word, we are, we are appealing to a higher authority and we're saying in the name of God that I will tell the truth. Now, I want to tell you what Hebrews is telling us is this. It said, you need to understand when circumstances don't seem to be coming together and God has made an oath, you need to understand that there is no name higher. So God has sworn by himself. It, it's, it's, God never has to say, so help me God. God is the full and complete authority and power. And that leads us to the third thing, and that is that Christ cannot fail. Now, prophets can fail, pastors can fail, we can fail. You know, we, we, you say, well, well, we shouldn't. I know. That's why John wrote and said, my little children, these things write I unto you that we sin not. And I want everybody to know he put a period at the end of that sentence. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And he stopped. He just said, don't sin. But praise God for the next sentence. But if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the propitiation or the full payment for our sin and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. He, he is the ultimate authority and what he is doing, and I'm not trying to belabor the point, but what he is doing in this passage is he is saying there are some things that aren't going to happen 
when you think they ought to happen. But if they are of the eternal nature, understand that God cannot lie, God cannot fail, and he has sworn by the highest thing possible, it shall come to pass. Hope grabs on and says, in his time, in his way, by his methodology, it's going to happen. It's, and, and I want to talk to you for just a minute about that, that anchor um, there in verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It, it's interesting. Um, I always have thought of that as, you know, a ship throwing an anchor overboard. And, and sometimes an anchor, uh, and, um, if the storm is sufficiently uh, let me put it to you this way. Under normal circumstances, when a, when a ship drops anchor, especially two anchors at strategic points on the, sh on the ship, it, it's, it will stay there. It will stay there with the rise and fall of tides. It will stay there with currents if there's no storm and if the, adequate, uh, the anchor is adequate. Um, um, even in the worst of storms, if a ship has the adequate anchor, um, it may move, but it will move marginally, just marginally, and it'll hold it down. But if you find yourself in a storm like in the book of Acts, you throw the anchors over and you just keep moving. But where the word anchor comes from, it's the Greek word, or the, the most common form of it is ankura. We get the word anchor from it. And this is not something that we throw overboard to hold us in place. This is the word anchor that was used when you go into a port and especially if it was a, a world-class port, you would go into the port and anchor your ship to a rock. You didn't just drop an anchor overboard. You, 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 you um, would... It's, it's complicated how it worked on bigger ships. But basically, men would get down in a little boat. They would go to a rock, a face of a rock. They would, they would tie off and in such a way that they were not dependent on a piece of lead that was on the bottom. They were tied to that rock in a way that could not be broken. And he says, that's what hope is for you. It's not something to just slow down destruction. I, I remember I went first, I, I had a boat when I was growing up and I don't know, I was 14 years old, probably I got out and I wanted to, um, I wanted to put anchor down. There, there was a place in P Pensacola Bay where the current was really bad and nobody ever tried to fish there because the current was just so bad. But I said, if, if, if nobody fishes here, smart fish live here. So I got there and dropped my anchor down and that current was so bad, but I said, um, you know, and I had homemade anchors. I said, I ain't going anywhere. But you know what I found out when I dropped that anchor? All it took was a few minutes and the anchor, the anchor held okay, but I, caught, I saw myself trying to fish, going, I was going around in circles. I mean, it was like something, it's like I was going down a drain, you know. Uh, it, it, it wasn't enough. But these ships would pull into this harbor and they would anchor themselves 
and there's, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but basically the only way they were going anywhere, especially if they had maybe three of these and the bow and the stern, and then amidships, they would have maybe three ancora that they would tie to, and they weren't going anywhere unless the whole mountain went somewhere. That's the picture. That's the picture. Not Popeye throwing a little piece of lead over the side. It's you are tied to something that is unmovable. That's the picture of an anchor that describes hope. It speaks of stability. In fact, the writer of Hebrews uses three words. Uh, it is sure, which means it is unfailing. This is hope. It is steadfast, which means it is unchangeable. And it is secure, which means it is unshakable. Now, this, like I said, I know this is very technical and I hope I'm not boring you. I really do. But I think we need to understand that there are going to be some periods in our life, like the people that the book of Hebrews was written to. See, these were people, um, we, 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 we don't know all the details of the purpose of the book. We don't even know who wrote the book. But these were people that had lost their temple, everything that they could reach out and touch. They had lost Jerusalem. They had lost their temple. Everything that they had anchored themselves to seemed to be taken away. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, you have a hope which cannot move and cannot be, uh, it is sure, it is steadfast, and it is secure. Now, let me... Um, let me take just a few minutes. I know we're at the end of the outline, but let me take just a few minutes to give you, this isn't in your, your notes, but give you some practical steps to get from promise um, to, to fulfillment. Um, these are kind of ethereal in and of themselves, but I, I, I want to give you six things to remember. I, I, I think... Um, I will say this, when I was a very young man, I don't think I knew any of these six things. To me, faith was about, if I got enough faith, I get it, and I get it now. Uh, I, I, had a, I had a preacher I used to listen to, he was read from the King James, now faith. He says, if you ain't got now faith, you ain't got real faith. And boy, I tell you what, when people are struggling, you tell that to the woman that's been praying for her unsaved husband for 30 years. Tell her her faith is no good if she doesn't have now faith. Well, let me tell you the six things that I, I think have helped me. I, 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 I'm hesitant to say I've learned uh, because just when I think I've learned something, um, I'll find myself realizing I don't have as good a grip on it as I thought. I'm trying to learn these six things. Um, how do I get from a, a promise to fulfillment? And somebody asked me a question the other night. I, I, th I think this might be good for me to give a 45-second addendum here. Um, a lot of times we, we were talking about prophetic statements that didn't come to pass or whatever. And I said, you know, a lot of times we, we hear something from God and God says it. But we get so excited, we don't wait for him to, to really fully explain to us what he means. Uh, I know one time I, I, there was a set of situations. 
it looked like I was going to get a huge promotion. I was going to go from, from, um, from being a pastor of a, of a small struggling church to being in a district position. And it looked like it was going to happen because of all the circumstances. And I told Ramona, I said, I, I, ne I need to go pray. I, I'm telling on myself and I'm ashamed to say this, but I went out and I began to pray and I heard God, I think as clearly as I'd ever heard him in my life up to that point. He said, I am about to bless you beyond your ability to understand. Now that's a powerful sentence. I just wish that I had listened to the rest of what God had to say. I'm about to bless you with something beyond your ability to understand. I went running back to the hotel room, literally running back to the hotel room and told Ramona, God is about to do this. He said, he's going to bless me um, with a blessing that's beyond my ability to understand. He's going, he's going to do this. And she wasn't nearly as excited as I was. Um, but she said, well, whatever the Lord, whatever the Lord wants. And it did not happen at all. It did not come to pass. The struggle that I had for months, for months, I mean, for months, the struggle that I had, I said this, I said, Lord, if I, if that wasn't you, I don't have the ability to hear you because that sounded like you. It smelled like you. It felt like you. And it did not happen. And I said, you just, I said, I know you cannot lie, but I, I what I said basically was, I'm going to give up on hearing you because I can't, I can't trust myself. And it was the beginning of a very lean few months. And, um, and then it was months later, um, God moved us from the church we were at to another place. Um, and while I was praying, as after I had already accepted the, the church, we were moving, it was a done deal. The Lord spoke to me those same words. He said, I am about to bless you with something that's beyond your ability to understand. And um, <clears throat> I wasn't angry. I just wasn't looking for God to speak anymore because it had so scarred me. And the thought came to me and I, I, I would not verbalize it. I didn't want God to know I was thinking this. But the thought came to me, yeah, I've heard that before. And this has been four of the toughest years of my life. You told me you were going to do that and I've had four years of great difficulty. And then um, the Lord began to speak to me so powerfully that I was compelled to write it down. It was amazing what God said he was going to do for me. Now I've got to rush to the end of the story. He has done all of those things that he said he was going to do. And I, I said, now I'd carried this for about four years. I mean, for about four years, I'd carried this almost four years. And I said, Lord, This, and this was still later after he, be, after he began to do what he said he was going to do. I said, Lord, what, what do I do with this? You said it and then you didn't do it. Now you said it and you did it. But Lord, I, I said, I've got to be honest with you. I'm afraid, I'm afraid something's going to happen and I'm going to drop it. 
If, if you can't deliver in the first place, how do I know I can trust this? I know, I'm so embarrassed to say that. But that's, that's what I said. And the Lord began to speak to me that afternoon as I drove country roads and just wept and blubbered and snotted all over the steering wheel. I said, God, I've got to, I've got to understand something. And the Lord spoke to me in the middle of the woods. And he said, you have got to learn to let me finish speaking. He said, I know the devastation that you felt when you didn't get that job. He said, he said this, I've got it in my journal, but that job would have destroyed you. And what I was telling you, and you, wouldn't, you, you, you didn't stop long enough to listen. What I was telling you is I'm about to give you this blessing that's beyond your ability to understand and that you would not understand the events of the next few days. But hold steady, I will do this for you. And he said to me, you've walked in an unnecessary desert for four years because you did not learn to let me finish what I'm saying. And even if I'm finished, you need to seek me. You need to seek me for understanding. You need to seek me for understanding. He took me to Acts chapter 10 where... Um, Peter had the, the, the vision about the, the sheep coming down and God, God showed him this thing three times. I mean, it was, it was like, that's how I know Peter, his last name was Chitty because he's sometimes very slow. God speaks to him and then he speaks the same thing to him. Then he speaks it to him again. And it says after all of this was taken up that Peter was sitting there wondering what it meant. And that, you know, I used to think Peter was just dense. But you know what? Peter had learned something that I had not learned. Peter had learned that when God speaks to you, it is the wisdom of the ages to seek out the mysteries and not just jump at what you want it to mean. Well, it's awfully quiet. It must be hitting home here. And that's why... I want to tell you the first thing that you need to do when you're trying to get from the promise to the fulfillment. Number one is seek God for specifics. Don't be afraid and don't be too quick to interpret. Um, sometimes I, I have a dream and, or, or the Lord shows me something and I feel like immediately I know what it is. Uh, usually when I feel like I know immediately it's because it requires immediate action. But I'll write down what I saw or what I heard in as much detail as possible. If I feel like I have an interpretation, I'll write that down. But I've learned I need to give it some time to mature in my spirit and understand what it is, uh, what God was telling me. Seek God for specifics. And loved ones, that doesn't mean you're dense. It doesn't mean that you aren't spiritual. Um, the, the Bible says that it's the glory of a man or woman of God to seek out the mysteries of the kingdom. So learn to seek God for specifics. Um, number two, I, I think this is something that the Lord has helped me kind of latch on to. Seek first the kingdom. 
um, we have a tendency to think that every dream and vision that we have is just about us and our welfare. And it may be, but a lot of the times what God gives us is a thing about the kingdom, a thing about the church, a thing about others. So learn how to put others first when it's sensible to do it. Learn how to take care of yourself as well. So seek God for specifics and then approach everything that God shows you or tells you or gives you from the perspective of kingdom. Uh, Lord, what, what does this have to do with the kingdom? Um, as I grew and matured from that day that I told you about long ago, I began to ask the question, Lord, how does this impact my wife? Lord, how does this impact my children? And I found out that God, the more I seek the benefit of others, the more God will tend to me. Um, so seek first the kingdom is the second thing. Now, number one, seek God for specifics. Seek first the kingdom. And number three, when God speaks to you, understand that you need to be willing to go the full distance. Be willing to go the full distance. Play the long game if, if you want to use a sports analogy. That sounds crude, but in, in other words, understand that... Um, uh, when God speaks something to your heart, be prepared to let that wine mature. Be prepared to let that cheese age. Be prepared to go the full distance. And don't give, it, it's okay, it's always okay to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand. You promised me this, you did this, but you don't want to make the mistake. See, Abraham did that. And every time Abraham did that, God came to him and God helped him. What you don't want to do is fall into the trap that Abraham fell into with Sarah. And that is, this must be what God meant. Uh, uh, Hagar, come to dinner tonight and let's talk. No, don't. Don't lose sight that God is the one who fulfills the promise. Okay, here's number four. Stay in God's presence until you have clarity and definition. Stay in God's presence until you have clarity and definition. There is nothing more humbling and more honoring than to have God speak to you. But learn the lesson of Peter and even though it's given to you in clarity and maybe multiplied times, stay humble before the Lord until he gives you the, the clear understanding, gives you the clear understanding of, 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 of what this means. Because I want to tell you, if you walk in humility, you may even find yourself like Daniel, where Daniel said, I heard this from God. And it made me sick. He had to go to bed for days. Um, uh, he, he, he didn't understand. Sometimes he understood immediately what a word from the Lord meant. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream about the tree being cut down, Daniel immediately said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I pray this would, would be a dream for, for your enemies, not for you, but this is a dream about you. God is about to humble you. Sometimes God will give you immediate clarity, but don't be afraid to stay in God's presence. Don't be afraid to acknowledge you're overwhelmed. 
by the revelation of the Lord and, and go to bed like Daniel did. Um, number five, learn the principle of manna and the, and, uh, the principle of presence. Manna and presence. Um, there, are, there are two dynamics that will work in your life and they are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes God will operate by the manna principle. You don't have to do anything. You just have to have faith. You just have to show up and the manna is on the ground waiting for you to pick it up. There are some things God will share to you and it's, I, I call it handfuls on purpose. There are times, frequently there are times I go to the Lord in the morning and I have a routine and I don't feel like doing the routine. I don't feel like going through the Lord's Prayer. I don't feel like putting on the armor. I don't feel like reading the, the, the number of chapters I feel like I, I need to read. And there are some days that I just say, you know, Lord, I, I, I'm not feeling it. And can I be honest with you? Every now and then I have days where I go through it and I don't feel anything except the satisfaction of knowing I obeyed. But there are other days when I go into it and I'm saying, Lord, I'm not feeling it, and I'm, I may be just about to the end of my devotional time, and something will explode in my spirit. And um, I, I learned that some, some things are like manna. God just, I, it's there for me, whether I feel it or not. It's there for me, whether I feel like I've earned it or not. But there's also the principle of the presence now, this was this is to me is one of the, is perhaps the most underrated dynamic. Oh, I've got to hurry. Um, the most underrated dynamic of uh, the story of the children of Israel going into the wilderness. God gave them His presence. That's the thing that we we overlook the most. How we can do nothing without His presence. Every church thinks that. Their strength is their programs, but it's not their programs. It's not their people even. The strength of a church that's moving on with God is his presence. And he said, my presence will go before you. He said, it'll appear as a cloud during the day. It'll appear at, as fire at night. And there were two great dynamics of God's presence. Number one, the people were cared for. Um, in the, the, the desert where they were wandering, the temperatures could reach 125 degrees. I started saying the shade, but there was no shade. It could reach 125 degrees. I've been in Israel when the thermometer said 118. Um, you say, well, what did you do? I told everybody to go ahead and keep looking. And I went in the store and got under the air conditioner vent and kind of opened my shirt sleeve so it could flow in and out, you know. But God's, you got to understand, God said, while you walk, I will cover you. One, I mean, we have no way of knowing this, but I read an article by a scientist. He said that he suspects that the temperature when they were walking because of the cloud could have been as much as 30 degrees cooler than if they had walked without the cloud. It is no way of, I mean, well, he, he proved it, but I couldn't understand him. I wasn't smart enough to understand his, his science. And then at night, that temperature that can be over 100 drops down, sometimes into the 40s. 
And he said, I'll be a fire. And it wasn't just, I want you to see me, but he said, I want to warm you. I want to warm you. It was his presence. See, sometimes God says, I'm going to take care of you even when you don't have faith that I'm going to take care of you. Sometimes God says, follow the cloud. Follow the presence. It's interesting in one of the passages, it explains it this way. Sometimes the cloud would stop for a day and the people would camp for a day. Sometimes it would stop for a week, they'd stop for a week. Sometimes a month or a year and however long the cloud was stationary, that's how long they camped at that place. Learn the principle that some things God is going to do for you, whether you believe him or not. But there is another dynamic where you must listen and ask him to give you guidance and direction. And the final thing I want to say, I'll repeat them because they're not in your notes um, in, in just a second. The final thing I want to say is this. Don't get too attached to any one style of provision. God will put you in a place like he did Elijah where your water is provided by the brook and every day at mealtime the ravens bring your food. Every day. But you must learn that in the providence of God there will come a day when the brook dries up. Now that doesn't mean God has failed. It's just we get so attached to his provision that if he didn't take the provision away, we'd never move. We'd never move. Some days the brook dries up. And all of those things are tied to hope. All of those things are saying, I don't know how long. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know who he will use or what he will take away. But God cannot fail. He cannot lie. He cannot change. He is sure. He is steadfast. He is secure. And loved ones, that's, we try to fight that battle on the faith level. And, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm making this clear for you to understand that battle is fought on the hope level. It's, it's a different level. It's a different dynamic. Um, if I've heard it once, I probably heard it I don't think I'm exaggerating, 20, 22 times this year, it seems like my faith just isn't working. Maybe 23 times, because I said that one time. My faith just isn't working. And after a few months of, Lord, why, why is our faith failing? I realize that it isn't our faith failing, it's our brook drying up because God is moving us to another level. That's what 2020 was about was us moving from another level or, or to another level. Now, what were the six things? Let me give them to you one more time. Seek God for the specifics. Stay, stay in his presence uh, long enough to get the specifics from him. Uh, seek God, or, or excuse me, when you get the specifics, number two is seek first the kingdom. Now, a, a word may be about you, but, but ask God how broad this is. Okay, um, I, it's not because my heart is perfect, but whenever I get a word from the Lord now, I want to know what does this mean for my children? What does this mean for my grandchildren? 
What does this mean for the church? What does this mean for the ones that I love? Seek God for the specific. Seek first the kingdom. Here's number three. Be willing to go the full distance. Faith, or excuse me, hope by its very definition involves patience. Patience by its definition means it's going to take some time. So be willing to go the full distance. And I, I do want to say this. That's the three things. That's three more I'm going to give you. I do want to say this. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, where's your promise? I'm tired. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, did I misunderstand? Can you bring clarity to me? God never gets upset with someone seeking light on a dark subject. But guard against unbelief that trashes the promise. Anchor yourself to hope. Number four, stay in God's presence. Do you have the clarity and definition that's necessary? Uh, can, can, I, can I say this? I have had more understanding about things God showed me years ago, some of it decades ago, than I have ever had in my life during the past 18 months or so. Um, stay in God's presence. Do you have clarity and definition? Don't lose hope. Number five, learn the principle of manna and the principle of presence. It, this is natural. It's natural for God to do some things for you, whether you are faithful or not. Manna. He, he made a promise. I'm going to feed you. And thank God he doesn't just feed us on good days, faith days, shouting days, tongue days. Some things are manna. They're going to be there as an eternal testimony to God's faithfulness. But we've also got to understand, we don't keep looking at the ground for the manna alone. We look up and see what is the cloud doing. Okay. And then number six, don't get too attached to styles of provision. Understand that when something dries up, it's not because God has failed. It's not because God is unable. It's not because he's quit loving you. It's because there is something else for you to walk in now. And that's why the brook dries up. That's why the brook dries up. I, 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 love, the, I love the story of ravens. If one day when I have more time, I'll, I'll tell you about God, how God did something with a pair of ravens that was absolutely phenomenal to me. But Pastor Corey and I were in England and um, he was at the Tower of London and I was somewhere else and we were going to meet up. And I sent him a text and um, I forgot, but basically it was, Corey, there's a bench in front of the tower. It's, it's in front of this store. It's the bench where the raven is perched about 10 feet away. And he wrote back and said, thou art a prophet. He said, I can't believe that you knew that there was a raven here. Well, the fact of the matter is I've been to the Tower of London. There are always ravens over there, always. I figured I had a pretty good chance of prophesying. So I had his, I had his, I had his real respect for a little while there. So. But just remember, when God dries up a brook, it's only because he has a widow and her son waiting. There's another source of provision. Father, we're out of time now, and uh, we ask you to help us. If there's anyone here or that will be listening to this online that does not know you as personal Savior, I, I, I pray that you would open their hearts to understand tonight or later that you are a big God 
We're big sinners, but you are a big savior. And you said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. So father, you said, come to me that you can have eternal life. It's, it's as simple as admitting that we're sinners, believing you died on the cross for our sins and confessing you as our Lord. Father, it's so simple. It's so simple. But as we say, it's not simplistic. You said, whosoever will may come. If there's anyone here tonight that needs to come, let them get with one of the pastors or one of the friends that brought them and let them make that peace and surrender to Jesus. If they're listening online, help them to call the church. Contact us at the website and say, I want to give my heart to the Lord. We'd be glad to help them. Father, I, I want to pray for my loved ones, this congregation. Some of them are struggling with, um, we, we prayed Sunday against depression. Some of them are struggling with loss. Father, there's just seems to be such tragedy that has attended these last few months through sickness and death and loss of job. This Sunday, we're going to be praying over the finances of your people. We're going to ask you to do something miraculous with finances. But Father, we're asking wherever the people are, we're asking you to lift their hearts tonight. Get them to that rock that Ankura that will be their anchor um, that will hold us no matter how great the storm or how great the difficulty. You've made a promise that you're going to get us through and you cannot lie. You cannot change. You cannot fail. We thank you that you're going to do it. Help us to just wait in your presence. And as we walk in faith, help us to also embrace hope as well as love, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.